Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. I'm Sheldon, alcoholic. <clears throat> it's nice to be here. I'd like to thank the committee for uh, asking me to come out and share my experience, strength, and hope. It's always a pleasure and a privilege and an honor to get to do anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is kind of the fun stuff that we get to do, so I always appreciate an invite. I'd like to thank Mark for uh, picking me up at the airport. I was uh, glad he didn't show up on his motorcycle. That was, that was, a, that was a good thing. It's uh very, very cool. Beautiful place. I am, uh, I'm grateful that it's not raining. I, I understand that happens once or twice a year here, so I'm really, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. It's nice to be in an enthusiastic meeting. There's a great feeling in this room. You guys are obviously excited about Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I'm excited about Alcoholics Anonymous. We, we share that in common. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I was born actually in England in a small city called Leeds, about 200 miles Straight north of London, uh, not born to alcoholic parents, born to average, ordinary folks. Uh, my parents uh, weren't drinkers at all, but they did get divorced when I was very young. I was two years old when my dad left, and uh, man, I, I hated my childhood. I, uh, we moved from a middle-class neighborhood into government-sponsored uh, housing and a Section 8 housing, born into a Jewish family. And we moved into a non-Jewish neighborhood with a lot of anti-Semitism. And I just hated my childhood. My mom would scream and yell a lot. Didn't like her very much. Had an older brother. He used to like to beat on me. Didn't like him very much. Didn't like the boyfriend of the week. Didn't like the neighbors. Didn't like any of the people I went to school with. Hated my teachers. Hated my life. And I tell you, when I got here, I would have said to you, if you grew up the way that I grew up, you'd have drank too. Right? I had this big nail that I hung my alcoholism on my child. You know what I found out when I got here? This is like really weird. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I found out that there are people in this world that had childhoods far worse than me <laughs> that aren't alcoholics. All right? Now, some of you may have had the kind of childhood that I'm going to describe, but there are people that were beaten and tortured and hit with electrical cords and locked in closets and starved to death, and somehow they managed not to be alcoholic. You know what the worst thing is about my childhood? It happened to me. <laughs> Isn't it funny how when things happen to me, they're always worse than when they happen to you? All right? Because it happened to me, it was horrible. Had it happened to you, I would have told you to get over it, punky, right? But it happened to me. I remember my first drink. Now, that does not make me an alcoholic. Uh, it, it is interesting, but it doesn't make me an alcoholic. I, uh, there's a lot of things I like. I like Snickers bars, for example, right? And uh, I don't remember my first Snickers bar. It stands to reason that there was snicker number one, doesn't it? Right? That chocolatey, dewy caramel as I bit into it. It would make sense that I, but I don't remember that. I, I do remember my first drink. I was with a kid called Barry. We were in a wooded area uh, behind a, a, a liquor store. We'd waited out in front of the store. Some guy had been willing to buy us some booze. We took the booze into the wooded area, and we went to drink. And the only reason I went to drink was because Barry wanted to drink. 
I was nine years old. Barry was 11 years old, which made Barry cool, right? Kids that are two years older than you and you're nine years old are cool. Barry wanted to drink. I wanted to drink. I'm really glad that what Barry wanted to do was drink. Or I might have had a whole different set of problems, right? <laughs> but, but, but Barry wanted to drink and we went into this wooded area and I took a big, he was old English apple cider that we were drinking. It's like apple juice with a kick and I took a big swig of that old English apple cider and something happened to me that was going to happen to me most times when I drank from that point forward. I took a big slug of that stuff and puked out of my nose because <laughs> I'm a nose puker. You know, I'm, I'm not good at drinking. Some of you are good at drinking. Some of you are the kids that, like the kids I went to school with that carried a half a pint around in their back pocket and when they drink, they did stuff better. They, they danced better and they played pool better and they played guitar better and they talked to girls better. And that's just not my story. All right. I'm not a good drunk. I'm a three beers, pee on the couch and hit on your mom kind of drunk. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm sloppy is what I am. I, I spill things and I break things and I'm not a good drinker. You know, you, when you say I'll drink you under the table when you get there, I've been there for a while. Right? I'm comfy under the table. But I, but I, I, I love drinking. I love, I love drinking. And I dragged, I was nine years old in that wooded area and, you know, you hear what alcohol does for us described in a lot of different ways from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've heard it described many ways. And the way that I would describe it to you is that I'm a short, fat Jewish kid from the wrong side of the tracks. My parents are divorced, and I don't like my life very much. And I get this bottle of Old English apple cider in my hand, and I take a big squig of it, and nothing really happens. Nothing actually happens, but what it feels like to me is that I've had a lot of problems, and all of a sudden alcohol fixes them. Nothing really happens, but what it feels like at an emotional level is that I grow three inches, lose 30 pounds, get a nose job, my parents get remarried, my foreskin grows back. It... <laughs> that is a cheap joke. <clears throat> I'm really just trying to make sure you're still listening, to be honest. <laughs> but really what happens to me, in all seriousness, is at the beginning of my drinking, it feels like when I take that drink that everything gets well. It feels like when I take that drink that my life is okay. And the journey of my alcoholism is at the end of my drinking, it didn't make everything okay, but it made the misery and the sadness and the depression and the uncomfortability of my life and how much I hated myself and the loathing that I had for life. It made it okay for me to be the piece of crap that I imagined that I was. But that alcohol from the first time I had a drink to the last time I had a drink seemed to do one thing for me, and it was it was in different degrees and in different ways, but it seemed to make me be able to breathe. I live in a world that just feels like a difficult world. It feels like a hard place to be. I don't know where I got the idea that it was. It just seems like the, there's no friendly place for me to run, that it's a dark universe. It just feels like I'm a, oh God, as they, to, 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 to quote a poet, it feels like I'm a stranger in a strange land. And uh, I take that drink and I love it. I made a decision at nine years old. I was going to drink whenever I could, as much as I could, as often as I could from that day forward. 
And when you're nine years old and you live in my mom's house, her roof with her rules, that means that that year I might have got drunk once more. And when I was 10, I might have got drunk two or three times and 12, three or four times. By the time I was 14, 15 years old, I was drinking or taking or doing something every single day, all the time, because I needed something to change the way that I felt, because the way that I felt was no good. Um, I got to tell you, though, that all of my drinking wasn't miserable. I, I got pictures in my mind of, 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 it's like moments frozen in time that are examples of what my life was like. And one of the moments that's frozen in my mind was many years after I'd moved from England to America, I was at the Shoreline Amphitheater and just outside of San Jose in Mountain View, California, and the Grateful Dead were playing. And, uh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm doing what you do when you go to a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> And I'm at the back of this concert and I'm, I'm, I'm having a, an amazing, you know, I heard, I don't know if you ever heard this. I heard somebody say one time from the podium that their best day drinking was not as good as their worst day sober. Right? I get why they say that. It's a bad quote out of the big, misquote out of the big book. Talking about how we wouldn't trade our worst days here for our best days there. But if your best day there wasn't as good as your worst day here, what were you drinking? <laughs> right? Because I'm going to take you back to Shoreline Amphitheater, and I'm on four hits of window pane, and I've been drinking all weekend, and I'm looking down, and it's it's one of those days that they get in the Bay Area, similar to days you get in this part of the world. I lived in Bremerton for a couple of years. I'm familiar with the area a little bit, and it's one of those... It's not really raining, you know, but you're wet anyway, right? It's cloudy and it's nasty and it's, but it's, it's, you're, and I'm outdoors and the lightning is light. I don't know why, but there's lightning and Jerry screams out, it looks like rain and the crowd goes insane, right? And I'm having a spiritual experience, the likes of which no 12-step call has ever produced in me. And if drinking's felt like that for the entire time I was drinking, I'd still be drinking. Because really what the bottom line is that hope, one thing that hopefully most of us seem to share is that no matter what the incidences were, no matter what the details of your life were, that if you're like me, there was a time in your life where, where without booze, life was difficult. And with booze, life seemed to have color. Without booze, life seemed boring. It seemed at best boring. It seemed bland. It seemed like it was made in black and white. And then some days it was painful and lonely and frustrating. And with booze, it seemed to make sense. With booze, it seemed like when I was drinking, when I was half in the bag, it seemed like I was plugged in and I was okay. And this is what life was supposed to be like. And I tell you, it made sense for me. Drinking every day made sense for me. I didn't wake up every morning thinking, what the hell did I do the that for the night before? I knew why I did that the night before, because my life made sense when I was drinking. And when I was in a state of abstinence, my life did not make sense. I love that, that, uh, uh, the movie that I think it's, I think the scene is from the days of wine and roses where he's already sober and she's not sober and, they, she's looking out, she's, they're in the apartment and he's begging her to get sober and she says, you don't understand. 
When I'm sober, I look out at the world and it is black and white and it is cold and it is ugly. And when I'm drinking, it seems to be in technicolor. And I understand that. You know, I'm the kid that's full of potential. I, this, I was a fairground demonstrator for a while. I sold Ginsu knives. But wait, there's more. I, uh, I, I was, a, I was, a, I was a slicey dicey guy at the county fair and through a lot of luck and a few different things that happened, I ended up, uh, uh, on QVC and I was a, uh, a guest host on QVC and I, I had arrived. I was like Bill Wilson out of the big book, right? My, I had, I had, I had climbed the mountain and I had succeeded. And publicly, outwardly, the book talks about outwardly we have the stage character we would like the world to see us as. And outwardly, it seemed like my my life was on the right track, and I was the fast track to success. And I'm only 24 years old at the time. And you would think that everything of my life was going wonderfully well on the outside. And on the inside, what was happening to me is that the alcohol was stopping giving me the freedom that it had given me in the past. So I'm in this position. I'm in this job. I'm doing really well. I got all this this these good things going for me. But inside what's happening is I'm starting to feel lonely and I'm starting to feel ashamed and I'm starting to feel broken and I'm starting to feel like even with the booze, my life doesn't seem to make any sense anymore. 25 years old, I lose that job. They, um, When they fired me, um, they said it was because they had found me smoking crack in the parking lot outside the studio. I think it's because they didn't like Jewish people. <laughs> but they have their version of the truth, and I have my version of the truth. And <clears throat> Isn't it funny how we always know why things go wrong, and it's never because of the actions we're taking, right? I lose that job, and I end up back in California, and I, I, uh, I get another good job, and I lose that job, and I get another good job, and I lose that job. And I'm the guy that has always said that I'll quit when I want to, I just don't want to. And at 26 years old, I started to want to quit drinking. At 26 years old, I'd lost every opportunity I'd ever had. I was the kid with all the potential, right? I'd spilled it in cheap barroom floors, right? I'm the kid that's supposed to go somewhere, and now I'm going nowhere. I'm, 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 I've lost all the family, all my friends. I'm starting to be alone. I'm, I'm like, I love Wilson's line. I was an unwanted hanger-oner is what I had become. And uh, 26 years old, I uh, had lost everything one more time, and I was staying at a friend's house, and he asked me to leave. Something about me stealing from him, but I wasn't really clear on the details. And I left, I left him, and I went into detox. I went into a seven-day detox facility. And uh, from there, I went into a halfway house. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I don't know if anybody's ever lived in a halfway house. Uh, this place was really very cool. I had no money, and they didn't expect me to have money to pay the rent. They let me move in right away, and they just said, if you get a job in the next couple of weeks, we want you to look for work actively. If you get a job in the next couple of weeks, at the end of the month, this first month will have been free, and then you can stop paying rent, which I thought was very cool. Uh, they offered food. They they served a meal every night, which was it was beautiful. They they let you make cereal for breakfast, and you could even pack a lunch, which I thought was very, very cool. I smoked cigarettes at the time, and they had 
uh, rolling tobacco and rolling papers on the table that was supplied by the house, and members of Alcoholics Anonymous would come in, and they'd donate cigarettes, and there was always cigarettes in the house. They had a washing machine that took quarters, but if you didn't have any quarters, other guys that lived in the house that maybe for self-preservation, right, would give you quarters so you didn't stink the place up. And it was a, it was a beautiful place. Uh, after 30 days of being there, my entire perception of that place changed. I wanted to know who the hell these people thought they were, right, that were telling me what time I had to be home, what chore I had to do, and I left that halfway up. And what happened was the worst two years of my life. I don't know if any of you folks have this experience. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's always about half the people in the room were able to come to AA and stay sober from their first meeting. And, and, and it's not my story. God bless those. I believe that those are the tough people in the room. I think they're the strong people in the room. Because what happens to me is that I show up at my, at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I get sober and I don't drink and I haven't had a drink for a long time and I'm about three or four or five days away from a drink and something starts to happen inside of me that I can, I can't explain. I can't stop and I can't live with. But when I'm separated from booze, which has been this magic elixir that's made the world make sense for all these years, what happens to me when I put down the bag or the bottle is that I start to get that thing, right? And I, I don't even know how to explain it. Wilson calls it restless, irritable, and discontented. And those, when I first heard those words, I went, yes. Right, I needed almost everything explained to me in the big book. I did not need restless, irritable, and discontented explained to me. Just like I didn't need pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization explained to me. I knew instinctively at a cellular level what that meant. But restless kind of describes what happens to me. Right? I, I guess it's the best word that you could use for someone that's never felt what I'm feeling. But what happens to me when I'm in a state of abstinence and the hangover's gone away and I've had a good night's sleep and a meal is that it just feels like I don't know if what I'm doing is right. It seems like this might be fun. I mean, it could be fun. We're laughing and having a good time, but I know there's something better going on somewhere, and I got to find a way to get from here to where there's something somewhere else that something better is going on, because there's always been something better going on, and I'm telling you, the best I'm feeling right now is bored, right? But, but I need that, I need that, I need the juice turned back on. I need the, I need, it feels like the power in my life has been shut off. The room is dark. The heat's been turned down. It just feels like, I don't know what I want, but I know it ain't this. Right? And I'm irritable. And it's not that I'm irritable. I mean, it, I guess I'm irritable. It's just, it's you is what it is. <laughs> you got that constant breathing thing that you do. When you don't feel very good and you don't feel very comfortable, and I didn't feel very good and I didn't feel very comfortable. When you don't feel very good and you don't feel very comfortable, it seems like everybody and everything around you just seems to make you a little crazy. And you got to remember, I'm this restless guy that knows that no matter what's going on here isn't the real thing. The real thing's going on somewhere else with somebody other than you because you're irritating me. How could the real thing be going on with people like you. 
And, and to be honest with you, discontented is kind of funny. It's kind of a funny word to use. I remember the first time my sponsor said to me, you know, you're just a malcontent. You just have this, this spirit. He would, <clears throat> he would call it spiritual dissatisfaction. You're never going to be happy, Sheldon. You need to understand that you're always going to thirst. And he's trying to be like kind. But here's what's happening, right? I'm hearing this from a guy. We're stood in a parking lot outside of an AA club. He's leaning on the, the time that he's, he had an infinity Q45, right? He's leaning on his Infinity Q45. He has golden diamonds on his wrists. He's wearing a nice fancy suit. I know because I've been to his house. It's beautiful. I've met his girlfriend. She's cute. He's going on vacation to somewhere nice, right? I, on the other hand, my life is miserable, right? I have no, I have no friends, right? I'm renting a room from some guy called Louie, right? Right? The, the nickname of the house was the Love Shack, for crying out loud. And I'm not getting no love. Right? My, 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 the sum total of all the joy in my life is the six o'clock meeting at the Kiss Club. Right? Oh boy. Right? I'm learning cribbage. Cribbage is fun. Right? And, 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 and every time I try and tell anybody that I am unhappy, they tell me, don't worry, you're right where you're supposed to be. Which, <laughs> which is one of the more irritating things you can hear when your life sucks. It's not that I am discontented. Take a look at my life, Sparky, right? <laughs> Get, get out of your Q45, take up your thousand dollar suit, leave your jewelry in the car, tell your girlfriend to leave, and come stay at my house. I think you'll be discontented too. And this is how I feel when I'm not drinking. And I can't say it, can I? How are you? Fine. I'm fine. Feel better, work better, having a better time. How are you? So I drink. And I come back again and I'm just, I can't, I, I don't want to, but I, I, I do. And then I drink. And then I get sober and then I get drunk and then I get sober and then I get drunk and then I get drunk and then I get sober and I'm just dying inside. I show up at Alcoholics Anonymous and somebody says something to me that just makes me insane inside. And I gotta tell you, before I tell you what they say to me that makes me so crazy, I gotta tell you that if you're new and I meet you, I might say the same thing. And I might say the same thing because I don't know how to invoke a miracle and it is a miracle that got me sober. I don't know how to create that in you, so I say it to you because I don't mean to say it, but here's what they say. Welcome back. Are you done yet? And I want to say, done what? What do you mean, done? Done what? What? Done what? Have you seen my life? No, I'm having a party. What are you, what are you, insane? Am I done yet? Have you had enough, kid? How can you have enough of something secretly you know you've never had enough of? Ever. There isn't enough of it. Am I done yet? Have I had enough? As if, as if I can choose not to drink. Right? But I'm new, and I got the monster on me, and my book says there'll come a time in your life where you cannot imagine life without alcohol. Nine years old, rooted area, with a kid called Barry Durham, wiping puke off my nose. I knew right then and there that I could not imagine life without alcohol, because it was magic. 
come a time in your life where you can't imagine life either with or without alcohol. You have the jumping off place and wish for the end. Boy, that don't sound like choice. I don't have the power of choice. I'm in the trap I can't spring. I cannot not drink. I will drink. I go back to that stinky little club time after time, eight days sober, 10 days sober. You know what? I got 30 days sober once and I lied about 60 days sober once, right? Right? Because I just could, I couldn't go, I'm new again. I couldn't do it. So I lied to you, right? And I'm dying inside and I'm showing up and I don't want to be like this. And I don't know how not to. I'm not choosing to drink. I am driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-delusion. I, I drink because I am so uncomfortable in a state of abstinence that I need to find a way to get some relief. And there's only one way I know. So I drink. And then I show up again. And I show up again. And somebody says to me, you know, in AA shelter, we have a trick for staying sober. In AA, we stay sober one day at a time. Now, today, I stay sober one day at a time. Sober a little over 17 years, and one day at a time, I'm very active in my home group. One day at a time, I sponsor guys. One day at a time, I talk to my sponsor. One day at a time, I spend a lot of time lately in prayer and meditation. One day at a time, I'm doing the deal one day at a time. So if I have a bad day one day at a time, I know I can get through that bad day one day at a time because I have a spiritual spiritual toolkit that was laid at my feet that I could pick up and use one day at a time. And I know what one day at a time means. But when I was new, it sounded like one day at a time. One long, miserable 24-hour period at a time. A jail sentence broken into 24 little tiny segments of pain and agony for you to live one day at a time. But I can't do that. Well, well, if you struggle with one day at a time, do it one hour at a time. As if that's good news. (laughs) 60 painful minutes. I can hear the second tick, tick, tick. Ah! You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You know, the problem is, is that when I was new, I had no idea what it felt like to be an active everyday member of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was new, I didn't know how those of you that have been around and are active and in the middle of this thing felt. I thought you felt like... I did it five days sober. So when you said, hi, my name's Sheldon, I'm 17 years sober, I thought you poor bastard. 17 years of this? I'd have shot myself by now. Oh, my God. Someone do the humane thing and buy him a drink. So I get sober to get loaded to get sober to get loaded to get sober to get loaded. If you're new and you're dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because you've been trying this just don't drink no matter what and go to meetings thing, I know what that feels like. If you're new and you've been going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't really feel like there's a solution for you here because you think you've been doing Alcoholics Anonymous because you've, you've come early and you've stacked some chairs and you've, you've thrown away some trash and you've, you've picked up cigarette butts in the parking lot 
but that's all you've done, and you don't know why it doesn't feel any better. Let me tell you my experience. My experience is that we need people to stack chairs. You know why? Because we sit on them. And when we're done, they don't go there, so we have to put them away. And so we do it as service to help our group so our group stays, but it doesn't relieve, it doesn't relieve alcoholism. We pick up cigarette butts outside because some people smoke and the church don't like it. And if we don't pick them up, we don't get to come back next week. And we need to come back next week because we kind of like the meeting. So we pick up the cigarette butts. And doing that service work is an important way for you to feel like you belong in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it says in our big book, it says in our big book, in A Vision for You, and I'm going to, I am going to about to butcher this. So afterwards, if you want to tell me how badly I butchered it, it's okay, I know. But in our book, it says, um, clear away the wreckage of your past. No, no, uh, abandon yourself to God. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find here and join us. It doesn't say what I thought it said. I thought it said, join us. Abandon yourself to God. Clear away the wreckage of your past. In other words, if you want to feel like you belong, if you're new here and you're struggling and you feel like you don't fit in Alcoholics Anonymous. The key isn't stay until you feel like you belong and then work the steps. It's not join us and then do the steps. It's abandon yourself to God, clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find, and join us. An old time it used to tell me when I was brand new, sitting in a chicken coop, don't make you a chicken. You got to lay some eggs. I was, I was, I was very, very new. Uh, when I got hooked up with the group I got hooked up with, and I'm really grateful I got hooked up with these guys. I got hooked up with a very active group in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was very, 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 very new. And we started this journey on the steps, and step one was easy for me because, like I told you, I went in and out, in and out, in and out. I know what it feels like when I don't drink. I get it. I have this obsession of the mind that drives me to a drink, even though I know it's bad for me. You can't live my life and not know that drinking is bad for me. I get it. It's bad for me. But I do it anyway because I got no way to stop. I get it. My life's unmanageable. You know, never, ever, 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 ever in any of those what do you want to be when you grow up assignments I had, did I say resident of a halfway house, right? I get it. I didn't make the decisions I thought I should. My life is a disaster. I get it. Step two, I can't do step two. I can't, I don't believe in God. I can't, I'm stuck. You know, first of all, I told you that I grew up in a Jewish home. It wasn't really a Jewish home. It was an atheist Jewish home. What that means is we're Jews, but we know we're wrong. <laughs> My mom would say that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's for fools and children. Now get dressed, we're going to temple. <laughs> Thought we did. I can't. I come to AA and you say that it is God as I understand him, God as he may express himself in our group conscience, that I can find my own idea of God, but you know, boy, it feels very churchy in here to a guy that's not a churchy guy. You pray at the beginning, you pass the basket, then you say the Lord's Prayer at the end. It feels very churchy. I want you to imagine, if you would for a second, what it might feel like if you were getting sober in a Muslim country. 
right? And those meetings, they say that God is you understand him, but you know who they mean. You know who they mean, and they don't mean your flavor of, 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 of faith. And it feels to me like you mean Christianity, and I can't do Christianity. First of all, my ancestors killed it. Now I know someone's going to correct me from that after the meeting. I, I know that we, but you know, you still walk around with a little bit of the guilt, you know, I mean, and how do you make amends for that? You know, pops, could you get me sober? I need your help. I know, I know. Great, 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 great. Zadie Jack killed your kid. But if we could move past that, I just feel like I can't do, and I feel like I've tried your faith. I do. I, there was a guy, I never forget Tom. Tom was a guy I worked with. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was a very religious Christian, and he, he was he was on fire for both programs. Right. And he talked to me about AA, and I wasn't interested. And then he would talk to me about Christianity, and I wasn't interested. But one day he said to me, you know what? If you would, he gave me a prayer called the Sinner's Prayer. If you would pray this like you mean it, I mean, you got to mean it. You got to really mean it. But if you'll pray this like you mean it, God will come into your life in wonderful, marvelous ways and remove all of your problems and deficiencies. I'm in. He gives me the prayer, take it home, put it up in the closet. Within the next week or two or three, I'm weeping like I do, snot bubbles the whole nine yards. Right? I mean, I'm just pathetic. I'm in the shower and I'm crying. And water's dripping up. Yeah. I'm going to pray the prayer, right? And so I, I get out of the shower and I put a towel on the floor and I grab the prayer. Now, if you're picturing this, picture me dressed. <laughs> Maybe I grabbed a robe or something, right? I mean, I was naked, but it's a better picture if you picture me dressed. But I'm on my, I'm kneeling and I'm crying. And I, oh God, I, I read this thing he called the sinner's prayer. And when we're done, nothing, nothing. I'm, I'm a, I'm a drunk. I take something, drink something, snort something, smoke something. I better feel something right away. I bet it better light me up now, boy. I am what Johnny Harris calls a downtown now kind of guy. I better get downtown, boy. So I expect God to work like five shots of Jack Daniels. I say the prayer, and then it's, hmm, that didn't work. No harps, no angels, no clean wind blowing through. I like, you know, I I love that. I was a big fan of Bill Stone. I love Wilson. I I adore the man. And when he talks about the clean wind blowing through and through and the room lighting up like I'm on the mountaintop, you know that comes after he takes the steps. That's on page 14. If you read page 13, he takes the steps before that happens. Even Wilson, this is funny, Bill Wilson did not have a Bill Wilson experience. He didn't. But he didn't, right? A Bill Wilson experience is the experience where you say the third step where God comes into your life, you feel connected and lit up, and then maybe you do the steps later. Bill Wilson didn't have a Bill Wilson experience. Bill Wilson did the steps on page 13 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the clean wind came on page 14. Amazing. Even Wilson did not have a Wilson experience. That's an interesting little factoid, right? Anyway, anyway there's a few people in the room who are mad because they've had you've had your Bill Wilson experience, and now you know that you're different than Bill, and that bums you out. But anyway, right, moving quickly along, quickly along. Um, so anyway, right, so I say this prayer, and I feel nothing, and I think I've done God, and my sponsor eventually takes me to the big book, which is where they hide the answers, right? 
And he says to me, do you see here where it says, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe in a power greater than myself? I said, yeah. He says, well, do you now believe? No. No, I do not believe. Are you even willing to believe? Well, what do you mean? Willing to believe? Maybe, just maybe, perhaps, maybe, probably not. It's unlikely. No, there's no such thing as God. Maybe, perhaps, willing that maybe there's a God, perhaps, a little bit, maybe. No, yes. Well, even an idiot like me can buy that, right? Okay, I'm willing to believe that maybe, just maybe, perhaps, maybe, probably not, maybe, maybe. No, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, perhaps, no, willing, yes. Believe, no, do not believe. Say the prayer. What prayer? Third step prayer. Just say the prayer. Just say the prayer. Say the prayer. It's a prayer. Say the prayer. Say the prayer. I said the prayer. I said the prayer. I said, I don't know how I can do this. You have to believe in God to do step two and step three. He says, no, you don't. I said, you do. He said, no. I'll prove it. Okay, prove it. He said, okay. Go ask a few guys in AA that are sober more than five years that you like and that you admire. How come they're sober today? I knew what they were going to say, but okay, sponsor, I'll go do it. It's like we give out a little card here, right? Like the 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 the, the standard answer. How are you sober today? I'm sober today by the grace of a loving God <laughs> that I found a connection to in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to thank AA for God, and I'd like to thank God for AA. <laughs> And I don't mean to goop on that, right? Because that's my story. You ask me, I'll tell you. I'm sober today because I found a connection to a God that I thought there was no way I could be connected to. But I found that connection. And it is my belief in God, my faith in Him, and the actions that He has done in my life that enable me to stay sober. True story. Swear it's true. He says, okay, Sheldon. So these guys that you love and respect, and you know a little bit about them, and they're, they're like, are you like, I'm like them. They're like, we're like each other. So if they found God in step two or three, why would you do step four, five, five? If I already got God in two or three, why the hell would I do five? All right, eight, nine, nine's expensive, boy. Woo! I'd save me a bunch of money and find God in step three if I was you, right? But I can't have a spiritual experience as a, because you're in step 12, it says. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. Not a result of these steps, but the result, the only result, the reason to take them so you can get closer to God. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. You can't have the type of spiritual experience we talk about an Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of 12 steps you ain't took. Right? Wilson couldn't. 13 takes the steps, 14 has the experience. Sheldon, you got to take this process, you got to do this work so you can have the experience that will allow you to be comfortable in your skin most of the time and be able to stay sober and happy. So write the list. So I wrote the list. You know what's funny about that list? I tell you, it's a goofy thing, that list. We could write the list for you, right? We could. The resentment list, the first part of the full step, we could write the list for you. Because they're all the same, right? Dad. 
mom, brothers and sisters, current spouse, current boss, previous spouse, previous boss, previous spouse, previous boss, previous spouse, previous boss, previous spouse, previous boss. And then it trickles down to anybody that's had any worthless or pathetic influence in my life from day one. I tell you a funny thing. I, this is a little embarrassing. When I was in uh, elementary school in England, I was probably seven. I had a lunch lady that made me finish my cheese pie and mushy peas. She was on my resentment list. I was 28 years old, and I was still mad at the woman from when I was seven, 21 years previously, that made me eat my cheese pie and mushy peas. I'm pathetic. But I wrote the list. So my first name on the list is my dad. I'm going to tell you very quickly about my dad. My dad left when I was two years old. And I hated my dad. And we sat with my sponsor during my fifth step and we talked about my dad. My dad, I hated my dad. And we weren't getting by this. We weren't getting through this. This was not going to be something we were going to get over because I hated my dad. My dad left when I was two years old. My sponsor tried everything. He said, you know, you know, your dad probably did the best he could with the tools that he had at his disposal. Uh, Get new tools, okay? Because I'm two, right? And I hate him, period. When we talk about my mom, my mom was on the list. My mom was somebody that would get angry an awful lot. My mom was somebody that would, uh, she uh, would scream and yell. You never really knew when you came home. It wasn't based, wasn't behavior based, right? I, if I was bad, she could be nice. If I was good, she could be mean. I'm guessing that because I wasn't good. But if I was good, I would think she could be mean because she could be nice when I was bad, right? But anyway, no, she was, she'd scream and yell a lot of, difficult living in the home. I hated my mom. We talk about my mom. My sponsor wore out talking about my dad. And we talk about my mom. And there's a great line in the book. It says, this was our cause. We realized that people offended us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we didn't like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Not like the well looking at the sick. You know, like, well, my mom was an SOB and sick. And I understand that. She should get well. But like the sick looking at the sick, like I'm sick, she's sick, I'm driven, she's driven. We're the same. And we talked about my mom and we talked about what it must have been like for my, for my mom to try and raise two kids, uh, uh, in a time in England in a small Jewish community. Divorce wasn't unheard of in the, in the seventies in England, but in that small Jewish community, it was very poo-poo. It was, it was a bad deal, right? And so she's like ostracized and, She's struggling and she's trying to raise these kids and there wasn't the social service help to the extent that it was, it was there, but not to that extent. Very hard for her raising these kids. We were very rebellious kids. Hard for her to get a relationship with another guy. We didn't accept it. It must have been hard for my mom. And we go through this whole thing and he says, what would you think it would be like if you were in your mom's shoes? God, you know, I mean, I get, and then he starts to talk about how perhaps she was driven to behave that way because of sickness. And maybe perhaps she didn't like the way she behaved. And he's true. I would catch her crying sometimes, even today, 40 years later. I was so, felt so bad about how I treat you kids, she'll say. Right? Driven by it, but couldn't stop it. And he'd say, boy, you know, have you ever done anything that you couldn't help do that you were driven to? Well, I'm a new guy in AA, of course, for crying out loud. My whole life is something that, 
you know, they told me when I got here that I was not guilty for any of the things that I did. And I'll explain why. I'm not a bad guy trying to get good. I'm a sick guy trying to get well. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not guilty, but I'm responsible. And we have a responsibility step. And they told me, you'll clean all that crap up, Sheldon. But you're not guilty. And your mom's not guilty. She was driven. Can you see how, like you, she was perhaps driven to do things that she didn't like out of her own sickness or her own... Oh, man, could I see it? I'm telling you, I didn't go rumming the mummy dearest right away. And my relationship with my mom has been far from perfect over the years, but I have the best relationship I've ever had with my mom. Stood here right now today, Alcoholics Anonymous gave me my mom back through. This was our cost in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And starting to see a picture of what it might have been like to be her. And try and let her off the hook for her imperfections and her failings. You know, I'm a funny guy. When I do it, you know, when I do something wrong, I want forgiveness. When you do something wrong, I want justice, right? I mean, I'm just I'm a funny guy like that, you know? I mean, forgive me and kill you is the way that I look at the world. Right? And I have to try and get this 180-degree turn where I stop looking at the world that way, and I get this relationship, start to grow back with my mom, and then he goes back to my dad. And he says, Sheldon, what about your dad? What about my dad, right? What about him? Well, what do you think it was like for your dad living with your mom? I never thought of that. Which isn't surprising because I've never thought of anything other than how I feel to this point in my entire life, right? Everything runs through the the prism of how does Sheldon feel, right? I never considered what it was like for my dad. My dad, he gets married real young. There was a war hangover in England in the 60s, right? I mean, the war was, the Second World War was bad here, but the bombs were falling in England and it was a little bit different. And there was a big war hangover in England, and they were still conscription, and he was had to go off to the Air Force. So he married my mom probably before he knew her, and he came home and he got pregnant with my older brother. And then and then my mom shows up, and oh man, if I was my dad, what would I have done when she came home and said she was pregnant? And she's this person that struggles with some of her emotions and her feelings and panic attacks and all this other stuff. Could I imagine if I was my dad, could I imagine leaving? <laughs> When I was 16 years old, I packed my bags, I went down to the government, and I told them that my mom had thrown me out of the house. I told them that because I couldn't stand to live with her anymore, because it was difficult to live with her. Could I understand what it might have been like to be my dad? Yeah. If I was in my dad's shoes, I probably would have done the same thing. I mean, it's not like if you look at my track record, I'm a guy that stays through pain. I'm a runner. I'm a get-me-loaded, get-me-out, get-me-gone runner. A slightest discomfort, and I ran. My dad laughed, and I didn't forgive him and love him immediately, but I started to see what it might have been like to be him, and I started to let him off the hook. I went through the process of uh, six and seven in a very strange and shallow way. I didn't really understand it, but I brushed through it. I started the process of making amends. I... um, I'm going to tell you about my dad today. My dad uh, and I became pretty close um, over the years that followed. Uh, He moved to um, Las Vegas, where I live, from Southern California, where he lived when he retired. And he became an amazing part of our family. He was uh, was retired, and uh, 
He'd be at our home uh, five nights a week. Became very close with my wife, who's here with me tonight, and my son. And uh, right as we were getting close, my dad fell in love and moved back to England. I broke my heart. Broke my heart because I felt like one more time, and this is many years sober. I'm 13, 14 years sober, active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, flying around the country telling my story from behind the podium. But I felt like that little boy all over again. My dad went back to England, broke my heart. And I remember being at my sponsor's house, and I'm crying, and I'm angry, and I'm screaming. I'm telling him, I'm telling him, this don't work. This AA crap don't work. You know, you you tricked me. You tricked me to let him back in the house. You tricked me to bring him close again. You tricked me, and he did it again. And I'm angry. He stopped me, and he said something to me that just made me think for a minute. He said, Sheldon, your dad's not going to live forever. And you get to make a decision right now, not how he's going to feel. But you get to make a decision after he's gone what your memories of him are going to be for the next 30 or 40 years that you're going to live after he's gone. You're going to teach your son the memories that your son should have of his grandfather for the next 70 years. And then he said, unless you're a perfect father, you're going to teach your son whether he should forgive his dad when his dad makes mistakes. What lessons do you want to teach your son? He didn't, with those words, make me forgive my dad. He made me willing to do more work in Alcoholics Anonymous. He made me willing to do some inventory. He made me willing to do some prayer. He made me willing to look at and try and find some answers. I tell you what I found. My dad honestly never meant to hurt anybody. I got mad at my dad one time in an argument. I said to him, Dad, just one time, one time, just one time, I'd like you to see that I'm in the room. I'd like you to notice that I'm here. I'd like you to make some decisions based on the fact that I'm here. And that was the problem with my dad. My dad didn't notice that we anyone was there but him. He never did what I thought. I always thought that my dad said, Oh, Sheldon's there. This will hurt him. Who cares? But it wasn't what he thought. He didn't even notice that we were in the room. He didn't have... I goofed for years from this podium about that line we say in Alcoholics Anonymous, that he didn't have the the tools at his disposal, right? That he did the best he could with the tools he had. I goofed on that phrase as if it was somehow trivial. But you know what the truth is? My dad did the best he could with the tools that he had. He didn't have any other tools. He didn't mean to hurt anyone. Do you know what? I never meant to hurt anyone. You know, there are liars, cheats, and thieves, and bad people in this room. A group this size, there are some real sons of bitches. But most of us are just survivors. Most of us just made the next decision as best we could, focused on ourselves and how we felt, and sometimes we hurt people. We step on the toes of our fellows, seemingly without provocation, and sometimes they retaliate. And that's what my dad did. My dad stepped on my toes, and he didn't know he did it because he did the best he could with the tools he had, and my dad got sick. And I went back to England where he was living, and I spent some time with him, and I came back, and then I went again, and it was a 
over several years. I went a couple of times. And I knew what had to be done. I had to make amends to my dad. I had to make amends to my dad. But I didn't know how to do it. Because I felt like if I would have said to my dad the truth, Dad, you know the truth is, Pops, that you did the best you could with the tools you had. And I just know you didn't have better tools and it's not your fault. Every way I practiced saying that, you know what it sounded like? Dad, I'm sorry that you weren't enough of a man to be my father. And I forgive you in my benevolence. Because I am enough of a man to forgive someone as small and inadequate as you. I couldn't find any way to say it to him, right? Because every time I... So I'm going to England now. I get a phone call that is not, it's not, it's not long. And so I go to England to see him. And I come up with this well-practiced speech. And I tell him. Dad, I want you to know, this is what I said. I want you to know I'm real glad you were my dad. And he kind of scoffed. What are you talking about? I was a lousy dad. I let you down all the, every time I could. I said, Dad, hear me out. I'm glad you were my dad because there are things about me that I really like. Dad, I got a good sense of humor. And you know my mom. <laughs> sense of humor is not from her pops. It's from you. <laughs> I'm grateful for my sense of humor. I'm a salesman. It has afforded my family a beautiful living. We have an amazing lifestyle. And if you're new, I know you're very happy for me. (laughs) But I told him, I said, Dad, I said, you know, you've given me the sales ability, and I'm grateful for the sales ability, and uh, that's a gift from you. And these are gifts from your DNA, my outlook on life, my ability to shrug things off, and not, not uh, dig in like some people do. These are gifts of your DNA. And I'm grateful for those, Dad. And for that, I'm glad you are my dad. And a healing started to take place. And then my dad said something to me. That I didn't know I needed to hear. He grabbed my hand and he said, son... I don't have much of a spiritual idea, and he didn't. He said, I don't know if when we go from here there's a judgment day. I don't know if there's nothing. or I don't know if we get to come back around. But he said, if we get to come back around, I hope I get to come back around as the kind of man that you've become. And a two-year-old boy was healed. I don't. I remember when I was brand new. I was maybe about a month sober, and I'm stood at my sponsor's house, and this kid John, and John never stayed sober. This kid John's like crouching down Indian style, and I'm stood up, and we're talking, and he goes, he says, "What do you want out of AA?" I started crying because I don't know how to answer that. I guess what I wanted out of AA was I wanted to learn how to be comfortable sober so I didn't have to drink. I can't begin to tell you what my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. I can't begin to tell you the journey. I, I wish, I, I wish I had enough time to tell you about the, 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 
the relationship that I have managed to somehow eke out with a God that I didn't believe in when I got here, the moments of meditation when I feel completely connected, the times with a new guy, a guy that I've just met that I don't know, but that I can see he is exactly like me. We are the same spirit. We're not only connected, we're ne- we've never been separate. That the greatest illusion on the world is that there's more than one of us here. That we are all part of this living, breathing spirit. That there is that there is peace in my heart. That there is love in my soul. That there are things that have happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't, not only did I not know they were possible, I didn't dream that I would even want them if I'd have known they existed. If you said to my mom, what's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous? So I'll tell you the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is a little boy don't drink no more and don't smoke no more crack. My dad passed, but he loved you. And if you asked my dad before he passed about the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, he would tell you it was this little boy didn't drink no more and didn't smoke no more crack. Ask me the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll tell you the same thing. I tell you that believe it or believe it not that I'm sober a little over 17 years and for most of those 17 years I haven't thought about a drink once. If I have, I've recalled from it like a hot flame. I don't sit around thinking I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink, let me drink, let me drink, let me drink. It's gone. That's the miracle of it. In step 10 it says this is the miracle of it. That, that alcohol has become a non-issue. It's been removed from me. That that is part of the joy of this deal. Another part of the joy of this deal is that suicide has not been a serious consideration for my future in a little over 17 years. And before I came here and got with you people and took these steps and did this program, it was a constant thought. That an Alcoholics Anonymous... You know, this is not a gift of AA in everyone's life, but in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous... I met my wife, and we have an AA home, and we have love in our home. I didn't want kids. She talked me into it. As if I'm capable of the behavior it would take to not have kids, right? Some of you get that. Some of you I'm concerned about. We have this beautiful son that is the light of our life. We've been out of town for seven, eight hours, and he calls me. To tell me he misses me. All right, he's my best friend, my little buddy. This is things that have happened to me in AA. I have a relationship today with a God that I didn't know I even wanted a relationship with that fills my fills me with joy. And when I look out at this world, I no longer see this dark, dangerous, bleak, black and white world, but now I see a world full of color and hope. That in front of me there used to be a world that was filled with unsurmountable problems and a dark and miserable direction. And now, when I look at the world, I know this. There is a power behind me greater than any problem in front of me. I am humbled. I am grateful. And I thank you for my life. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.